winter. Hello and welcome to the ninth of these podcasts from the Isles of Mal, Iona, Alva and Gometra. I'm Alistair Satchel, I live outside of Dervik in the north of Mal and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I talk to Janet MacDonald of Tobermory. Janet is a well-known figure in the local community, having grown up in the town. To many of the people of North Mall, she'll be long remembered as the Gaelic teacher at Tobermory High School. Janet is also well-known in Gaelic circles for her singing and her involvement with both the local and national mod. For those of you who have not come across the mod before, it's a celebration of Gaelic language, song and culture, with competitions, plays and concerts that take place in a different town every October. This year it was Dunoon, a fine place for a mod. I spoke with Janet by the fireside at her home in Tobermory. Archie, Janet's husband, was there with us, and he occasionally joins in with the conversation. At one point, there was a pitch invasion by a gentleman who I'm hoping to talk to soon, Mr Ian McKinnon, who has plenty of stories about life on the island that would be of interest, I'm sure. There's a really nice local flavour to Janet's memories. There are many people and places mentioned, some no longer with us. We talk about houses and the people who used to live in them, drawing a map in my head with both people and place. I'll be back at the end to say a couple more things and round off. Anish, Shaw Shanak, Alman Dabarvara. Who are you? I'm Janet MacDonald. I used to be called Janet Tandy. And I was born here in Tobermory. Uh, where were you born in Tob? Were you born in... I was born in the wee house behind Alva Cottage. <coughs> Do you know where I mean? Up near Strongarav. Yes. Um, so Alva House is the one beside Strongarav, isn't it? Yes. And there's a wee house behind it, which I think is maybe a holiday house now. I don't know. Okay. And it was snowing the day I was born, apparently. Gosh. <laughs> and what did, uh, what did your, your parents do? Uh, well, at the time that I was born, my father was in the Far East because he was still in the Navy at that time. He was in, I'm not sure exactly where he was the day I was born, but he went to Java and Sumatra and Ceylon and Singapore and places like that at the end of the war, just after VE Day, I think. Just a, They got married in June 1945, and he went away very soon after that. And he didn't come back until, I think I was three or four months old when he came back. Gosh, that must have been something for him to... That was so common at the time, though, I as well. It was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Aye. Yeah. So, yeah, so he came back, and then they both, my mother and father, both got jobs at Ada's house. Oh, really? Uh-huh. So when I was about one, we went and stayed there. And I lived there from when I was one till I was three. And do you remember anything of it at all? I remember a spaniel dog called Mulach. <laughs> and I remember the pony that the Allen girls had. There were three daughters of the Allens, Jean... Margaret and Susan. Jane was the youngest, Margaret was the middle, and Susan was the older. And they had a pony called Jake. And I think it was actually quite wild. I I didn't realise that at the time, but I think it was. But my father sometimes put me on him and, and we walked round the loch, the lake at Arras, apparently. I do remember the pony, but I don't actually remember going on its back. Gosh. And the house itself, I've only seen the photos that are there um, at the, the, the car park now. I've not actually seen the, 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 the what it was like originally. Do you have any memory of the house itself or the feeling of it at all? I think so. Um, and of course the, the stable block and all that was there for years after the house was knocked down. Where was the stable block? How do you explain? You know when you're in the big car park? Yes. 
if you were to go down towards the boat house, you know, the, yes, the yeah. sea, the pier, yeah. if you were to go straight down from there, I think the stable block was kind of on the left there. So and it had a big the... arch. And it was that was still there till early 70s. Right. Late 60s, early 70s. Because they eventually dismantled it. What was the name of the man that owned the distillery? Was that Jowett at the time? He wanted to use, he was going to use the building. They were going to build a bottling and blending plant ah. where, where Riverside is now. Okay. And he dismantled, or the, he had the place dismantled, and all the, the blocks of stone were numbered, and they were taken down um, to... I think some of these stones might still be there, under wow. all the grass. Wow. To be honest, up beyond where the Riverside houses are now. Hello, Do you know the stones from the stable block at Aris House? Do you remember Jowett, the distillery man, took them? Do you think some of them will maybe still be there? Up beyond Riverside. The archway and all of these big granite blocks. Dealt with them somehow they they were going to be doing this with them. They were there, they were actually lying yeah, in, in, a, in, a, in the shape. That's right, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because they had them numbered and they were going to rebuild them yes. in the right shape. Aye. Yeah. That's like in The Ghost Goes West, that's what they did. They I took see. a castle from uh, somewhere in Scotland and took it across to America and they took the ghost with them in the castle as well. But yeah. Oh, right. You can make an appointment to. Well, indeed, I would, Mr. McKinnon. Mr. McKinnon, I would, yes, at some point in the coming weeks, if we could catch up for the podcast, if that was okay. He got one or two things wrong, but did he? Yeah, well, at the age of ninety-three, forget it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I can tell you plenty of stories. Yeah, that was <laughs> whether or not well, that was true, of course. Yeah, well, that doesn't matter at all. Yes. Uh, the aye, so Aris Castle, the feeling of Aris Castle. Uh, uh, sorry, Aris Aris House and the feeling of Aris House. Is there, is there anything that kind of stays with you from it? Do, do you get a sense of was it a dark place? Was it a light place? What was it? I can't really remember. And the trouble is, there used to, they had a children's party every Christmas for the community, or just for yes, it? for the community. So therefore, I would have been there. You know, after we, I think I was four when they left, mm-hmm. and we came. We moved into Tobermory. Uh, but we, I used to go, well, all the kids used to go at Christmas time to a party. So anything I remember, I'm not sure whether I'm remembering it f- from when we actually stayed there or from Later the days. years afterwards. Uh-huh. Right. I don't know how old you were when you stopped going to the parties. But, and everybody always got a lovely present. Because I remember getting a clockwork skier that would go down slopes. Yeah. And then it broke. If I remember rightly. But anyway. Yes. <laughs> I also remember looking out the window of the drawing room in Aris House and there was a huge big tree, which I think the Forestry Commission knocked it down eventually when they were turning it into a park. It was an enormous, it had a huge girth. In fact, I think the the base still of it will so. still be there. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do remember the garden with wee box hedges. You the know, walled garden? The walled garden, yeah. What was that like? It, I think it was probably quite nice, and they had it pear trees espaliered out on the on the wall. I remember that as well. I don't know what any of the stuff tasted like, to be honest, but I remember seeing them. Hmm. And apparently, I've been told that at one point there were eight gardeners employed. Not at the time that we were there, but there there was a gardener, 
but not eight. But there were eight at one time. That's quite a thought. I yeah. know, it must have been... Mind you, it's a huge place. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the, the lodge as well at the time? Do you remember anyone living in the lodge? Yes, there? oh yes. The lodge where uh, Nicky is now, yes, Nicky yeah. Ratcliffe, that was Duncan MacLeod mm-hmm. and his sister Jessie. And she was married to Danny Robertson. Um, yes, so she was... She, well, my mother always referred to her as Jessie MacLeod, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, Duncan looked after the dogs. There were kennels... Until quite recently, they you could are, see I'm them. Sure, are yeah. they still there? Yeah, I think they yeah. Are, yeah. And he had loads of dogs. I don't know how many dogs were in there. I'm not very sure what exactly his job was, but he worked from the estate. And it was a really interesting house. I keep meaning to go. Nicky keeps inviting me to go and look at it now. Well, you must, yeah, but yeah. it had, <clears throat> I remember they had a huge big range which seemed to take up the whole wall. Mm. It wasn't just a range like the normal ranges that you saw. It had, it was a big high thing mm-hmm. and it had. I don't know, it looked to me like about five or six different ovens. Wow. There were, you know, you could open doors here, there and everywhere. And then it had a big, um, what do you call that thing there, mantelpiece, mantelpiece with, a, with a brass ring that you could hang things on. And they also had one of these old-fashioned phones that you pick up, mm-hmm. you know, you pick up a bit to speak into. Oh, yeah, 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 the ear trumpet ones. And a, and a thing for your ear. Good I remember you. that quite well, yeah. Oh, gosh. It's a very happy place. I, when Tony was there, I, I used to love going to see him. It was it's great. It's a nice house. Yeah. And they also had a bed recess. Oh, really? In the, yes. In yes, the main room? In the main room. Uh, there was a door through, I think, to the back kitchen. I don't think I was ever in there. Yeah. But then there was this bit in the wall. that was. A, I've no idea how many rooms were actually in the house. It probably wasn't very big. So I remember them. And then the other one, you know, the theatre one, Oh, yeah, uh, Bobby Butters' house. Yes. yes. They used to stay down in the wood cottage, these Macleans, Bobby and Alistair, and when the mother and father were alive. Right. They stayed in wood cottage. Is that the one where the chemist used to live? That's right. Right. And then the mill cottage. It's down, you know, the <clears throat> where the pier is. Yep. If you go, oh, instead yeah, of going down yeah, there, you yeah. go that way, and yeah. it's down there. Yeah. And there must have been a mill, obviously, mm-hmm. when it's called the mill cottage. Mm-hmm. And Sam and Jetta Johnston stayed in there, and Ailey and her brother... William stayed there when we were there, and then I don't know who stayed in it after that. Jetta's a name from the past. There's, I haven't heard the name Jetta in years. What was that short for? Probably Janet. Right. Wouldn't you think? I don't know. Very possibly. Um. And then there was a Volkswagen Jetta car, which Sam had, I remember. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so Arnest Park was full of folk. Oh, yeah, there were lots of... And then there was the one down where McGoughan's is now. That was a lodge. I didn't know that, right. You know, the original... We ha- Do you remember that? Before the longest was when built? I was here, it's long because I've been Right, well, the last years. person, I think, to live in there was a lady called Mrs Durno, who was Audrey Knight's mother. Gosh. You know who I mean? James Knight's yeah, yeah. wife, Audrey's yeah, yeah. mother. Juliet's granny. Juliet's granny. Aye. Mrs Durno lived in there. And then, of course, it was right by the sea because the, the yeah. car park has and now been built over... Yeah. And there was a wee garden that went out, and I mean, the sea was just over the wall from the garden. So that was now people lived, trying to think who lived in there. Jessie and. Oh, McNeil. Somebody McNeil lived in that house when when we were there and when I was wee. So there were lots of lodges. Aye. And uh, the one Belloch and Drown then was another lodge. Which one's that now? Uh, where Donald McCush lives now. Okay, yeah, yeah. That was another lodge. Ah. 
and it, well, it belonged to the estate as well. So there must have been a lot of people employed there, right enough. Sounds like a lot, yeah. After Aris Park, where did you move to? We moved to Spey Cottage in Bradalden Street. But, I mean, I'm talk- when I'm saying we moved there, we had about two rooms in the house. You know, they were all rented houses, obviously. And my mother always used to say this. Their name was on the housing waiting list for years and years and years and years before we finally got... But anyway, we stayed in Spay Cottage only for about a year because the lady, she was a Miss McIntyre, and she died. And then I suppose the house was sold or something. And then we moved up to what's now called Kulmula. Between Jennifer Jacks and Alistair, the Gaelic joiners, we moved there and we had two rooms there. Right. And there was no... When we went in up there at first, there was no electricity. And I remember it getting put in. But before the electricity, I remember we had tilly lamps mm. and there was a hook in the middle of the ceiling and my father used to hang the tilly lamp up on the ceiling and used to say, that's what it's going to look like when we get the electric light because there'll be a light in the middle of the... Ceiling, and then we got electricity, and we had the light, and I think it was probably one socket because my mother had a baby belling cooker. Prior to that, she must there must have been a range. I don't remember, but she had this baby belling, which of course you can plug into an ordinary socket. So that was that, and then when she was ironing, she had the iron plugged into the light bulb. The light, ah, uh-huh. well, it had a light bulb and thing. Yeah, I yeah. And in a way, it was quite handy because you could stand in yeah, the middle of the floor. And wouldn't get your Yeah. It was probably very dangerous. Yes, I think that's why it stopped. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness oh, me. Dear. Wow. So, um, and did the family settle in one house for a number of years or after that? Or? We were there from when I was about five till I was nine, and then we got a house in Rockfield. Ah, fantastic. The number 39. What was Rockfield like to grow up in? Oh, it was fine. It was full of kids. Yeah. So what <laughs> What did you get up to as kids? Did you have gangs? Did you make dens? What did uh, you... Yeah, we made wee houses, the girls. And we made wee houses down at the river quite often. You know where Riverside is now. Mm. There was a wee path going down. It's maybe still there because it's right at the end of where Riverside houses stop. And we went down there and there was quite a deep... We used to swim in there as well. There was quite a deep pool. Gosh. But there was another pool further up the river called the Black Pool. But I think it was deeper. I wasn't really very fond of that one, I preferred the one that you could touch the bottom. Yeah. And we used to in in winter we used to go sledging in Mrs. Bree's croft, which was Robert McDougall's got sheep in it now. Yep. Yeah. You go in the gate there and up the hill and then there was a great slope right down. And if you went through the fence at the bottom you could actually land in the burn because it comes round in a loop like that. Yeah. But I don't think I ever went quite fast enough so that was fine. But we didn't ever go up to the where they go now is up to the golf course, yeah. everybody. But we never went up there, but we always went up to that one. And Mrs Bray, was that Madge Dudgeon Bray? Yes, that's the very person. Can you say yeah. a little bit about her? Because she, she's a, um, a character I'd love to know more about as the years go by. Well, I didn't know very much about her at all. I just knew her as Mrs Bray. And they lived on a boat mm-hmm. down there at the old pier, mm-hmm. which was called the Ben Heant. Mm-hmm. And there was another boat there for a while called the Anne Van. Mm-hmm. But it was, I think it was sunk out at Calve. Really? Or was that the Ben Heant? Somebody else will know that. Jim Spencer, sure. grandson of Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes, and I remember Sarah, and I think Sarah spent most of her childhood on that boat. Yes. I had no idea that there was any connection with Penmore. 
Yeah. At that time, yeah. you know, it was just and that was her croft, and uh, you would see her walking up and down the hill, actually, going to the animal. And she never seemed to mind us all going sledging in her crow. Well, if she did, I never found out about it. <laughs> yeah. So who were your contemporaries around that time? Who who did you muck around with? I don't think there's any of them left here. Ailsa McMillan, Ailsa Hewitt, <coughs> was in my class. And Elma McCallum, who's not here anymore. But her, no, I don't think you would know her. And Anne Bennett, who's also not here. Anne Bennett's father was like my father. He'd been in the Navy, came here during the war. Um, I don't think there's anybody else still here. Isn't that awful? Anne McLean, okay. Alistair's wife. Oh, she right. was a wee bit older, right enough, but yeah, I think she used to go sledging as well. And she lived in Rockfield. And Sheena Darach and her sister Mary, do you know who I mean? She's married to Ian Cruikshanks. Okay. They live in, uh huh. Uh, so yeah, they were in Rockfield. And Ronnie, Anne's brother, Ronnie McLean. Your dad said uh, was away at sea. Uh, was that was that his profession, or was that just during the war time? No, no, he was just uh, he was just um, whatever you would call it, conscripted or whatever you call oh, it. Yeah, you're dra- you're drafted, yeah. Uh, and then when he came back, when I was whatever age I was, three or four months, um, I'm not sure what he did first, but he certainly for a while was working driving a lorry when they were building the Rockfield houses, which was about 1950. 51 or so. And then he drove a taxi for mm-hmm. Robert Neil Carmichael, you know, Kay Morrison's father. So he ro- drove, and they were great, lovely old cars when I think about it. Now, I mean, at the yeah. time, it just didn't mean anything. They were just cars. Yeah. But the good thing was that I sometimes got to go places with them. Like, uh, I remember being over at Penmore Mill. Oh, yes. Uh, when I suppose I was about. I don't know. Ian Ian is just a little bit younger than me, so he mm. would have been maybe eight or nine or something like that. I don't know. And I can't even remember why I was there, but it was a Sunday night, mm-hmm. and he must have been having to go for some reason, and I just went with him for the run. That freedom that cars gave you at that time, I know, was very important. My my uh, mum's... So my grandmother was from Glendaroolway, a place called Ormadale, mm-hmm. which is down by the, the shore there, and they had a, an uncle who used to... Uh, who was a chauffeur for the estate there, and there was another uncle, or maybe the same uncle, who used to drive for the post, mm-hmm. and they used to get to go on adventures with them, and it was just the sense of, oh, going in the car know, for the day, oh, yeah, bees on Yeah, because you didn't, nobody had cars. No. And you never went. The only time you might go to Salon or to Craig Newer would be if you were in Oban for the day on the boat. Yeah. And somebody gave you a lift. Instead of coming all the way back on the boat, you might get off at Craig Newer or Salon and get a lift back. But that was very unusual. And the boat in those days would call in at... Grimnan, Salon, Loch Allen, Craig Newer and Oban. It's a heck of a journey. Oh, no, and a wedding state went to Lismore as well. To just cross my mind with other conversations I've been having with people is uh, milk, butter, and cheese and things like that. Where did all that come from in those days? Do you know, it's funny. Somebody said that to me. We were talking about, I think it was Fiona Jappy. We were talking oh, about yeah. a mulloch where um, Mrs. Reed had brought a cow down as a protest, had brought a cow down to the front of the co op because the co op was starting to sell milk from away. That's fascinating. When they were... Well, it's in one of the old mullahs, and they're all in the museum. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, uh, she came down and stood outside the co-op as a protest because they were producing milk and the co-op was 
importing milk from wherever they were importing it from. And they had been sending it out to Colin Tyree as well, I think. She thought it was the very first edition of the Mulloch, but I don't know the first issue, but I don't know that it was. But, well, now, when I'm thinking about it, our milk did come from Scribrua when I was wee because it was the Macmillans, and that's Ailsa, who was in my class, and Mary, Mary Tepengi, and, well, Marjorie's grandfather this would have been. Yeah. Uh, they sold milk, and she came round with... Miss, Mrs Macmillan, the mother, came round with, like, a Land Rover Aye. with churns in the back, and oh. you went out with your, uh, your can, and she had a... Um, I don't know, a thing like a scoop thing, like a ladle. Well, I think it was a half pint, actually, that she put into the jug or or two, whatever you were getting, yeah. And and she came round every day with the milk. In fact, up until the time, up until after we got married, they were still, by that time it was um, Scala still, the Bowmans were delivering the milk. And it was the same. It was your, uh, you, you had to have your own can. And they took it out and they filled it up. And presumably, well, if you had a fridge, you would put it in the fridge. See, people didn't have fridges either. In the press, didn't it. you? Yeah, that's mm. right. Cold cu- uh, the cold cupboard. I, I wonder how on earth we survived. Mm-hmm. We Did didn't you? Get, <laughs> we didn't get E. coli or no, any of these things. No, that's right. As far as we knew. That's amazing. So, um... So you, your dad was driving, and uh, what, what did your mum do? What was your mum's? Uh, anything at all. <laughs> she did. She, she was quite a good cook. That's what she did it when we were at Aris. She was the cook. Ah. And then she became the school cook. My auntie was the school cook when I went to school at first. And then I can't remember when my mother started. So I had to go to school dinners, whether I wanted to or not, every day of my life. I went to school dinners. But yeah, um, that's what she did up until she retired, really. She was the school cook. You're very, you're very well known in the, in the world of, of Gaelic for very many different reasons, but what role did Gaelic play in your childhood? Not a great deal apart from... Well, my father obviously didn't have any, but my auntie and my uncle both were nearby and they were forever in the house. And they always they never spoke anything any English at all to each other, you know. Yeah. So I suppose I just kind of picked it up because I was nosy and wanted to know what they were saying. They never made an effort to... In fact, in these days, they normally spoke to you in English. Adults did speak to children in English yeah. rather than in Gaelic because they would assume that you didn't understand. So, yeah, that's fantastic. They didn't compromise and just spoke in Gaelic. And, you could have... <laughs> and were they from Tobermory as well? Or were they from... Yes, yes. My, aye, my great-grandfather came from... Ardmarachan from Sana and married my great granny who was from here. She was a McKinnon from Tovermory. And so, yeah, they were here from then. The community in Rockfield when you're growing up, was there quite a strong sense of community and sort of Cayleys and things like that? Not Cayleys in Rockfield, no, there no. were Cayleys. There were Cayleys and there was a Cayley. In winter, there would be a Cayley in the school every month. Really? Uh huh. And I used to do Highland dancing, so I think that was probably why I had to go. My mother went anyway, and when I think about it now, it was in the infant room, which is the old school where Antopa is uh-huh. now, the r- r- round at the back. Uh-huh. And I think these women who made the teas and things must have gone up to the what they called in these days the domestic science room to make the tea and carry it down in the dark. Because oh, it was always dark because it was winter. Mm-hmm. But they were very good keelies. They would have the people doing work, you know, women doing it, walking, uh-huh. and... Men telling stories. Um, quite a lot of people will still remember this because I was talking to them about it not so long ago. Kenny McFarlane, you know McFarlane's shop that was here? Mm-hmm. 
Kenny was one of the brothers of the McFarlands and he was forever telling stories. And I can't remember whether we even understood them. We just used to laugh because they were always funny. And he was quite often the Ferentaya at the Cayleys, I think. Yeah. And Colin Morrison used to come from Penmore to sing. Really? He was a lovely singer, yeah. I remember the first time I ever heard him, yes, because he wasn't a very big man, he was quite small. And the first time I ever heard him, I couldn't believe, because he had a big, big, deep voice. Like, Ian's got a deep voice. And I couldn't believe that this man who wasn't very big was producing this big sound. (laughs) I do remember that. This is what I'm absolutely loving about this work, is that uh, hearing glimpses of people from the past that are gone and... Well, I'll tell you something else about him. He was born in Argyll Terrace in Tobermory. And the reason I know that, I was I take bursts of looking up my ancestry and I had credits on Scotland's people and I got an email the other day saying you've got so many credits and they're going to expire. I think they've now expired, I didn't use them all up. But I went on and I was getting the, the registers of the, not birth certificates, but just the registration of births. Mm-hmm. And I looked up my mother's and I got it. And there were three births on this page and the first one was Colin Morris and he was born on the 13th of October. And then there was my mother, who was born on the 22nd of October, and then there was somebody else. Goodness no, first of all, I said to Ian, when, you, when was your father's birthday? And he said, the 13th of October. And I said, that's fine, that's definitely the right person then. <laughs> so that was quite interesting. But she said that they'd lived here for quite a wee while. I thought maybe they were just, they happened to be in Tobermory and he was born. But no, and he was a farm servant, his father. He was called John. Mm-hmm. And that's probably who Ian's called after. Because mm-hmm. that's the way it worked, wasn't it, mm-hmm. in these days? So... What was Topper Murray like as a place to grow up? Was it uh, was it quite a serious place to grow up? When it, I know Duncan talking to, who's what, thirty years older than yourself. Uh, I said to him, "What did you do for fun when you're growing up?" He worked. <laughs> um, so what, what what did you do? Oh, for no, fun? we had quite good fun. You should, guising was a great thing. Yes, yeah. That was good. You went out round all these houses, and then and also the fancy dress party was a great thing as well because it was very people were very um, secretive about what they were going to dress up as. Brilliant. And it was a big, you know, it was a great thing, and there was always somebody there taking photographs of everybody, which was also good because you know, in the whole time I was in school, we didn't have school photos. You, I've got no photos of my class. The only photos I've got are of the Gallic Choir. So if you weren't in the choir, you didn't get your photo taken at all by the looks of things. And that seems to be the case from, I was talking to someone else about this, from about the 30s, really, from just before the war till the mid-60s. There were no school photos taken, which is an awful shame. Mm. You know, because you tend to forget some of the people that were in your class, maybe. When you finished your schooling, what what did you do? Well, I didn't finish my schooling here because the school only went up to third year. So when I was 14, I went to Oban High School for three years, which was fine, apart from the hostel, (laughs) Mm. which was run by a lady who thought she was running a girls' boarding school, really, I think. We had to be in, we went to school, school finished at ten past four, and our tea was at quarter past five. And I would say that, that between ten past four and quarter past five was the only free time that we had in the whole day. Because once you were in for your tea, that was it, you were in. And, well, the bad thing about it was that communities lost all their young people. Yes. Uh, and you got, you know, I had been in the guides. I'd been in the brownies and then in the guides. And there was absolutely no question that you could go out to go to guides in Oban. <coughs> Nobody even considered that it would be a good thing to do. And there were guide um, 
groups in, in Oberon, but I don't know, it just never happened. And the other thing was, of course, we were away, well, Ian Morrison will have told you this already, he was there from first year. Mm. We were away for the whole time, for the whole term, apart from like half terms you would get, but you couldn't get home at the weekend or anything. So you were completely divorced from your Roots. community. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's probably why I was the only person in my year who actually went to Oban School. Elma, one of my friends, went to Commercial College in Edinburgh. And I'm trying to think what Anne did. Did she do nursing? And Ailsa went away and did something else. But you left because there wasn't anything here to do, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Very, very few jobs. And it was quite a depressed economy at the time as well. And to be honest, when we were growing up, the only thing you were thinking of was to go away, to go somewhere away. Which I'm glad to see people aren't thinking nowadays, that they tend to be more... Coming to here. Wanting to stay. Yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. So that's good. So after Oban, uh, did you go... I went to university in Edinburgh. Ah, what did you study in Edinburgh? I studied, to start with, maths. Really? Yes. Goodness me. It was a weird thing. You didn't get very much careers advice, I have to say, right. in these days. I don't think anybody did. I don't think it was just our particular no, it was a generational thing, maybe, yeah. But um, they said, oh, just do the things that you're good at. You know, do the, the subjects you're good at at school. And I was good at maths, so mm. I did maths. And I am a qualified maths teacher. Well, I was a qualified maths teacher, although I'm sure I wouldn't be able to do it now. But during my first year there, I met a girl who had been in Oban school. She was a a year ahead of me, I think. And she said, I'm going along. They're doing an elementary Gaelic course in the Celtic department. And I said, oh, really? Because I hadn't done higher Gaelic. I had Mm. done no grade, but I hadn't done higher. And I said, oh, that might be quite interesting. I'll maybe just come along with you. And I went along and they said, yeah, sure come and do this you know the numbers in these days studying Gaelic were really really low so I went along and I did it and the first at the first um, exam time at the Christmas that would have been I did well because I had it wasn't like I wasn't doing elementary because I had done it before and they said why don't you just come and do the first year uh, course and I said well I can't because the entry qualification you were supposed to have a higher and they were saying oh it wouldn't matter but by that time I'd missed a whole term so I said, no, I'll do it next year. So I did, and I did two years of Gaelic as well. So I've got a very, very strange degree. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. But I, it was good. I enjoyed being in Edinburgh. So who was the Gaelic teacher when you were in Oban? Donald Thompson. What was he like? A scary. I was just going to say, is this the terrifying one that people but, talk about? Yeah, but he was he was probably a good enough teacher. I don't know. Was he Lusach? Yes, oh yes. Uh, they both were. There was another teacher called Dan Morrison who was also there. It's not that long since he died. and But he was the kind of person that would say, right, these are the competitions you're doing at the mode. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, really? But I wasn't thinking, yeah, no, but these are that's what you're doing. And that was it. You didn't have any option. And while I was there, I went in 1960. And I joined the choir, and so I was at the Maud, the National Maud, which was in Edinburgh in 1960, and then Stirling in 61, and then the National Maud was in Oban in 1962, so that was great because you got off school to go and help, you know, we were doing runners and things like that, and that was excellent, I enjoyed that. We were staying in the hostel, we couldn't go to Cayley's, no chance, you still had to be in at quarter past five for your tea. I know, it was. And I mean, well, we got out on a Saturday night, you got to go to the first house of the pictures in the Playhouse Cinema. And that was, I think the first house must have started about six. We certainly had our tea first, but you got your tea on a Saturday at five o'clock right enough, so it might have been six. And then you had to be in by half past eight. (laughs) And then 
a few years before I had gone there, apparently there was a girl in sixth year who had repeated twice during her time. So she was 19 mm. and she was still having to be in at half past eight. Oh, that's that a shame. So they extended it. So six years were allowed to stay out till nine o'clock. Well, that's pretty good. So we could go and have a coffee in the George Cafe after the pictures. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> uh, and meet boys and things like that. <laughs> oh, that's what she thought. She was, mm. you know, she always assumed yes. that if you were anywhere, you would have been boys. meeting boys. Yes. Yeah. So if, if you don't mind me asking, how did you meet Archie? Oh, that was a different thing altogether. I met Archie. My mother introduced me. Right, OK. He was working at the school when my mother was the cook. Mm-hmm. What were you doing? Building a new building? Uh, yeah. And uh, I was out with my mother one night for a walk and we met these people and she said, oh, these are the guys that are working at the school. And that was how we met. (laughs) So you, uh, Edinburgh University uh, with a degree in maths and Gaelic. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, Where was your first teaching post? Oban, Oban High. I was there for a year. But I had done some uncertificated teaching and these days you could do uncertificated teaching. In Edinburgh, I was in... Free range teaching. Portobello. Secondary school, I think it was called. As maths or English or math, mm-hmm. and um, another one called Craig Royston, mm-hmm. which was in a very tough area of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. But then, but I was still teaching maths, and when I came home, we got married, and I came back, and we, the, a job came up. And it was doing all sorts of things. It was just a job. And my mother said, oh, I think you should go for that, you know, in the school there. So she agreed. Well, she didn't. She just said she was going to stop work and she would look after the kids because we had two boys at that Brilliant. time. And I went back. And then during the time that I was there, that was in 1970 or 71, during the time that I was there, the Gaelic teacher left and the head teacher came and said to me, I see you've got Gaelic in your degree. And I said, yes. I wonder if you would cover the Gaelic classes until we get someone else. And they never got anyone else. Right. So that was it. Gosh. And then in 77, Miles came. Aye. Well, no, I was pregnant. Uh-huh. So I was going to be leaving and he got the job, fortunately. Gosh. Because I was quite worried that they wouldn't get anybody. And he was here and it worked in quite well because by the time he was leaving, Malcolm was five and he was going to school anyway. So that worked out. So there's been a continuity of Gaelic teachers for, for yep. decades. Yeah. And then when I lay, when I was stopping, um, I said to, I think it was Rosemary Ward at the time, she was the Gaelic person in Argyll, and I said, um, would it be okay, would it be all right for me to contact the colleges? Because I was really quite worried, because there is still a shortage of Gaelic teachers. Yes. Can I contact the colleges to say that I'm going to leave? Oh, there's no need to do that yet. And I thought, I'm just going to do it anyway, yeah, because yeah. otherwise they managed to save money by... Yeah. Aye, they save money by not advertising the job until the middle of the summer holidays. And then by that time, by the time they've done interviews and things, it's Christmas. So this was November, I decided I was going to leave in June. So I started contacting the colleges then. And they got five applicants, which was great. Is that when John Norman came along? No, that was Yvonne. Oh, Yvonne Gunn. Yes. Yes. Aye, who listens to this podcast as well. Oh, does she? (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, she can hear nice things about her. Oh, aye, she's great. She came and then... Shortly after that, the folk from the Gaelic unit, the first lot from the Gaelic unit, yeah. were coming up, so they needed a second teacher, and they got Sarah. That's brilliant. So that was good. Yeah. Yeah. And what were the particular highlights of, of teaching? Uh, do you think are there any moments that stick out? The best things, I think, the best thing about any teaching job at all is school trips. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get to know a different side of the children. Totally. 
you're also known as well for uh, for your group as well when when you were younger. Could you say a little bit about your your popular music group? <laughs> <laughs> that was again. It was about 1970. It started. I was down the street this day and it turned out it was the local mode, which I hadn't even realised because the kids were only very small and I was too busy looking after them. And I met Jim Gallagher, who used to work in the Clydesdale Bank. He was a really good singer. He he learned enough Gaelic to sing. I don't think, I wouldn't say he could speak Gaelic or anything, but he worked in the Clydesdale Bank and he was here for... A number of years, but he he actually left later on in that year to go to Campbelltown. He left in about September of 1970 to go to Campbelltown. But anyway, I met him mm-hmm. on the street and he said, there's a folk group competition in the local mode. And I said, well, what about it? And he said, well, we could go in for it. And I said, but we need somebody that can play an instrument. And he said, oh, that new man in Robert Neal's shop can play the guitar. And this was Dave Williamson. And I didn't know Dave at the time. But in we went to the shop and said, can you play your guitar? And we cobbled together two songs on the day and then went and sang in the afternoon. So that was the beginning of it. That wasn't, we weren't called The Sound of Mull then. Yeah. And then, as I say, he went away to Campbellton. So Dave and I were then thinking, this is really quite good. We should get someone else to join us. So we got Joni to join us. Fantastic. And I don't know if we went to the mod that year. No, I don't think so. But I think we maybe went to the Stirling mod, which was 1971. And we were definitely in Inverness in 72. Yeah and aired in 73, and then we won the folk group competition in 74. But we just had the one guitar. You know, when you look at these groups nowadays, they've got masses of um, instruments. Well, the folk string scene now is just remarkable. It's such mm-hmm. a great thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So who were the other groups that were around at the time as well? As yourself? Well, there was Nahokanich and Nishirich, mm-hmm. who I'm assuming were from the west side of Lewis. I, don't, I never really thought about it before. Mm. And there were people called Nihilirich, who consisted of Kenna Campbell, Seamus Campbell, oh, and one of the other Campbells. One, another sister, I can't remember which one. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, there's so, so much we can talk about this. Mm-hmm. There really is. And also the role in the mod as well. How's that felt, having grown up going through the mods, to end, have ended up in a, a position of, of steersmanship within <laughs> the mod? How does, how's that felt, the well, national mod? I think it was quite a good thing. I think... Everybody that runs the National Mods should come up through the Mods, but yeah. obviously they don't. People get jobs for all sorts of reasons, and that's great. But I think you have a different perspective on it when you've been a competitor. And even when you're a choir member, you have a different perspective as well, which, which is also all, a good yeah. thing. Uh-huh. I think so. You know, um, I've often been able to say, when somebody has come up with what they think is a brilliant idea, I've often been able to say, well, you know, talking as a competitor, that is just not going to work. Yeah. And they've glad. Fortunately, they've taken my word for it. And yeah, and also you've you got know. the experience of oh well, we tried that before. And it uh-huh, that's right, yeah. exactly. Yes, so it's quite nice that. But what? it's good. But it's a completely different event now to what it was when I was young. That's what I was going to ask. Is what what do you think the importance of the mod is now? Well, it's a it's a showcase basically for the language. That it, it's the biggest showcase that you could get because of the television coverage and all that sort of stuff. Of course, some people don't like all the television coverage, I have to say. I know some people who have phoned me up to say, will the BBC be filming the whole of the gold medal? Yes. Well, in that case, I'm never going in for it again. Because they just... Well, that's... I mean, you can't do anything about that. That's just people's... That's personal choice. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and compared to the I stayed for it, it's absolutely nothing because they've got days and days and days of it. It's just on for all the morning, noon and night for 
probably about a week. Yeah, no, it's... Uh... Whereas we've not quite reached that stage yet. <laughs> but it's coming, it's coming. And it's interesting that to start with, well, the first thing they did that they broadcast live was the traditional medal final on the Thursday night. We, we moved it from, used to be Thursday afternoon, and we moved it to Thursday night. And it worked. It really worked. That was back in 2013 in Paisley. Right. Uh, and everybody was reasonably happy with that. And then we thought, right, we'll try something else. And we saw no reason why we shouldn't do the gold medal final, put it onto Wednesday night instead of Thursday morning where it used to be. So, yeah, that was fine. And then we started kind of saying to them, now, what about an afternoon? Oh, no, we couldn't possibly do afternoons. No, we're not, we're not licensed to uh, broadcast in the afternoon. And that's true yeah. because if they use whatever... Bandwidth, yeah. If they use the bandwidth, something, they lose... Radio 4 or something. Maybe it's not Radio 4. They lose something. I hope it's not Radio 4. I like Radio 4, yeah. So do I. But anyway, uh, they lose this and they couldn't possibly do it. And then somebody said to me, a few months after that, I thought you told me BBC Alipa couldn't um, broadcast in the afternoons. And I said, that's what they told us. Well, they've got the Scottish Bulls Championship on. For the whole of a weekend, it was on from 12 noon on the Friday all through the afternoon, 12 noon on Saturday and 12 noon on Sunday, I think, as well. So I went back to them the next, when the next time we had a meeting balls. with them and I said, so, how did you manage? Oh, well, yeah, mm, yeah, I'm not very sure how that happened. And after that, they were quite amenable to it. So we started doing the choirs on the Friday afternoon and now we're doing the choirs on the Thursday afternoon as well. So we've got, um, have we, got we haven't got Wednesday afternoon yet, We've got Wednesday evening, Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening, Friday afternoon. They did, they asked, the BBC would have liked if we'd put the main choir competitions on Friday evening, but I knew the choirs would say, no way, that's for us to go out and enjoy ourselves. Yeah, totally, it's it's about the experience of it, it's not about the broadcasting, it's that's about right. the, yeah. And I mean, it's fine being stuck behind a camera, you know, in front of a camera for the whole of the afternoon, but you don't want it after six o'clock as well. Um, as Ian McKinnon was just passing through there, he said, oh, ask about ghost stories, she knows ghost stories. Do you know any ghost stories? Not really, no. Uh, anything that sticks out? I can remember them t- talking, you know, telling ghost stories when I was wee, uh-huh. and I always used to think, it's always just when it's getting dark and late and you're getting ready to go to bed that they start on this, and then I was always frightened to go to my bed. Yeah. But I can't say that I actually remember any of them. It was usually... If it was anything at all, it was people seeing people that were dead. Yes. Again, yeah. you know, meeting them on the road or something like that. That was very common across all the. But all I don't. The yeah, areas, but yeah. I don't remember any details really. Yeah, my family talk about uh, a, a dog um, that uh, they had. I think it was Fruach, uh, when they were in. I think it was I Lawrence, my auntie was, and Fruach had passed on, and she saw Fruach running through the field on the other side of the water, mm-hmm. uh, just across a burn, and no, it's quite quite common. I, I do remember one wee story, and it's not really got all that much to do with ghosts. Well, right. maybe it has. Uh, some woman down the, the prison brie, I think it was, um, she was pregnant, and she got a fright from, of all things, a hare or a rabbit. Yeah. And when she got the fright, she went like that on her leg, and when the baby was born, it had a birthmark in the shape of either a rabbit or a hare on its leg, just with. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Where she had grabbed her leg, I'm quite sure it's rubbish, but oh, that's nice. I do remember that. Yeah, mm. <laughs> I probably haven't even got the details right, but it was it was certainly a, an animal of some kind. I think it was a rabbit, but I hear. Mm. 
And she had gone like that. <laughs> Just to kind of round off, um, what? How do you? Th- how do you think um, Tobermory has changed in in your time here? What's? What would you say the changes are that are most significant for you? The number of people who have come in. Although, to be fair, Tobermory was always a place where people came in because it was an administrative centre. Yeah, totally. There were always people coming in, like to work in the post office or the banks, where when there were three banks. Goodness me, yeah. Uh-huh. What, 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 there's Clydesdale. There was the, well, that was the north of Scotland. Where the Clydesdale Bank is now is the north of Scotland Bank. Mm-hmm. And Falcher was the Clydesdale Bank where Duncan's, Duncan's father was... Yeah. Uh-huh. Duncan's father was the manager of the Clydesdale Bank, and then the Royal Bank was where the corner shop is. You know where Pete's corner shop uh, is. That was the Royal Bank. I don't know. Gosh. Till that was the most recent. Yeah, I don't remember the Clydesdale being the Clydesdale Bank, but when I was we, the bank that's there now it was called the Clydesdale and North of Scotland Bank, so it must have been Merch. amalgamated. Yeah. And then the Royal was there until. Probably the mid to late sixties, actually, the Royal Bank was still there. And also, um, having had a family and having seen the family kind of move away, how is it to have the family back? Oh, here? it's lovely. It's great. Yeah. At least we've got half of our grandchildren that we see every day. Yeah. And the other half that we don't. <laughs> yeah, and they're quite far away, aren't they? At Australia and just north of London. Yes. Right. But we see well, we see the ones in England very regularly. And we see the Australians as regularly as possible, and we see them on Skype anyway. That's mean Skype and FaceTime have made the world oh, well, just contract. Yeah. See, I remember my dad being in the Merchant Navy when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I would go for you know, three months without seeing Outside dad. Uh, and, the, and the minute I was a student, it was email. I could be in contact with my dad. Mm-hmm, it was great. Mm-hmm. But uh, I remember getting satellite phone calls. Did you ever get satellite calls at all? I don't know. They were incredibly expensive phone calls. And you'd get two minutes of, Hi, Dad, how are you? Oh, fine, I agree. All right, bye. <laughs> that was about it. And it was... I do remember, well, I don't remember doing this myself, but I remember people having to book calls yes. at Christmas or New Year or whatever yeah, to, yeah. you know, just to make sure, right, we're going to phone at this time and you had to book a trunk call or an overseas or whatever it was called. International, it would have been called. Well, yeah. Joni's the one to talk to about, <laughs> about phones. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you to both Janet and Archie for making me so welcome. It was really great to spend time with you and I hope we can catch up again soon. One of the things that I've really appreciated about living on Mull is the way that Gaelic speakers such as Janet and Ian have been so patient with me as I've tried to make progress with the language over the years. Right from the start of my efforts, they've always talked to me in Gaelic, as have many others. Duncan and Morag, Moira and Seamus, Alistair the Gaelic joiner, May, Carol and so many others. That's a way to keep the language going and I'm very, very grateful to each one of them. More than thank you there is, though, one naughty Gaelic speaker who shall remain nameless, who I first encountered in the co-op, where he was shopping one day. He was chatting to a member of staff in the shop when a young woman walked past, and he let out a long string of admiration for her in Gaelic, which she was quite oblivious to. Having never met him before, I wandered past and said, Nachaling and la, much like I said to Ian in the conversation you've just heard, meaning, isn't it a lovely day? His face fell, and he went totally silent and then muttered a few polite words in Gaelic. It was nice to know he did actually have some polite words. 
If you're listening to this podcast as it goes out on Thursday the 22nd of November 2018, there's a couple of things that may be of interest to you this weekend. There's a Christmas art and craft show on at Ambeerling at Penmore on Friday, Saturday and Sunday and it's open from 11 till 3. It's now become an annual event and it's well worth having a look at to find unique gifts for the festive season. On Sunday from 13.30 to 15.30 there's also a producer's market on at Dervig Village Hall where there'll be food, arts and crafts for sale. Why not make a day of it and come across to both? While that's all going on, Carl, my son and I, will be in Campbellton at the Scottish Comedy Film Festival's Slapstick Weekend, which I'm really looking forward to. We're showing the classic sketch Dinner for One, along with Buster Keaton's The General, Duck Soup by the Marx Brothers, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Mabel Norman shorts, and we're live-scoring one of our short films called His Trysting Place with James Gray, Jamie Smith and myself and a group of volunteers, while on Sunday I'll be running a slapstick filmmaking workshop. And Shona Thompson will be there going back through the archive of Scottish comedy to find clips from Victor and Barry, Stanley Baxter and many, many more. It should be magic. If you're in Kintyre, do come along. We'd love to see you. I'm working up through the Hebrides over the coming weeks, so I'm not sure how I'm going to get on with editing and releasing a podcast over that time. I'm going to try my best, though. As these podcasts take quite a lot of time to make, I'm also looking to fundraise through donations. So if you feel like it and you're able to, please feel free to donate the cost of a cup of coffee or even a packet of Burger Bites, wherever you may be, through the website. You'll see a donate tab there where you can donate if you so wished. But don't worry if you can't or you don't want to. I'd much rather you listen than you didn't. If you want to leave a rating or a review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast, please feel free. And on that note, thank you to Wendy for your donation. I very much appreciate it. Thank you. As ever, the webpage, whatwedointhewinter.com, has all the links and info you'll need from this episode. And we can be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening. I look forward to speaking to you again soon. And for those of you listening in the bath, don't forget to do behind your ears. Yes, I'm talking to you, Neil Kasky. More than thank. Shinu.